Um, every single one of the contractors who did new construction bought their own hull and set, um, and they started in incorporating in their own processes. Because once you've already built the digital model, um, it was powerful enough to be able to visualize on site. And every single one of them found a real value where you're taking um, the conceptualization of a 3D model or a 2D model from plans and putting it in the real world. A digitized process is here and it isn't going away. But how do you go about this well? I'm Todd Wyant and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast. You're invited to join my mission to embrace and share the innovations transforming the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing industries. Check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com, and please share with your friends and coworkers while leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I'm excited to welcome Sean McGuire, Director of Innovative Technologies at Mechanical Contractors Association of America, MCAA. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Clear the sirens up. They're on the background. That was on your end, not mine. <laughs> They're coming for me. <laughs> yeah. Let's be clear. That's not that's not around here. Nice. All right. Note it. It's on the record. Uh, can you start by giving us a, a brief overview of the you know, your background and, and how best to contact you? Sure. Um, well, uh, let's see. I started in this industry about 20 years ago. Um, and uh, originally, I, I came out of college to start working for NECA and got involved in the industry, liked it a lot, uh, moved to make the, made the transition over to MCIA. Uh -huh. I've been, you know, my, the first part of my career was really being a jack of all trades, which really did kind of help me out because it meant that I was seeing a lot of different aspects of the industry, especially as uh, my members have to deal with it every single day. So uh, I represent mechanical, plumbing, and service contractors. And being that jack of all trades at first really kind of gave me the opportunity to see, you know, what the, the pain points were for each of those individual entities. So, you know, I would go to a fabrication conference and I get to see uh, what the real pain points were for people who are trying to fabricate every day. Or you deal with the service contractors and you can see, well, you know, it's really, you know, they're having issues with, let's, let's say, for example, uh, manpower or training. And then you work with the, the plumbing service or the plumbing contractors and you can see that it's a totally different uh, set of needs that they need to be, uh, be for their for education and their deliverables that they have uh, for their businesses. So mm. it did kind of help round me out at first. Um, about six and a half years ago, uh, we started to take a look at our association to see what kind of uh, ways that we weren't uh, being able to, to fill all the deliverables for our members and, and the needs. And the biggest thing that we identified was that there was a glaring hole as it pertained to innovation. Um, as, you, as you well know, like, uh, innovation is, is basically driving a really fast uh, pace of change for the industry. Yep. And our contractors are no different. Um, this was pretty much the start of when BDC was really starting to take a hold. BIM was, was getting in there. And there was, a, there was a definite need to not only um, learn to see what the, what the main areas of the industry needed, needed better uh, deliverables on or education on, uh, but to also make sure that we could ensure that our contractors who are already um, starting to get in the space had all the right tools to do it. So I've, I've kind of taken that charge and over the last, you know, six years, we've really been putting our shoulder into it, uh, which is no small task, as you well know. It, it is, there is a lot to get a hold of. And um, simply saying that I'm, I'm doing my best to learn about technology is a very wide um, uh, path for me to try to cover. So 
it's tough. Yeah. It's, it's, it definitely, it definitely is difficult, but it's, it's a need that is there for the industry. And, and my main charge um, pretty much right now is making sure I can push the industry forward and making sure that um, the, not only the, the, the construction industry as, holes, but as a whole, but my members are able to uh, compete and uh, secure their business and future-proof it to some extent by staying ahead of this. That's awesome. It's exciting that there's people uh, focused on this like you. I think the industry definitely needs that because there's so much innovation going on out there to have somebody kind of championing that and having a, giving a, a voice to that is great. Well, the good news is I'm not the only one anymore. The, there are more and more people like uh, every single day. And it's not just on the, the software side or the hardware side. You're starting to see uh, other association groups, uh, other more contractors are having somebody who's in charge of their research and testing. Um, they, everybody's still starting to identify the problem. Now the whole thing is just, how do we, how do we um, adapt to it more than anything else? How do we get ahead of it? How do we adapt to it? Um, so what kind of, what were some of the things that attracted you to the industry to begin with? Well, the industry as a whole, the thing that kind of attracted me, um, you know, I've always um, tinkered or built or, you know, even from a young age, it was Legos. I never, to be honest, I never gave up the Legos. I still play with Legos with my yeah. kids all the time uh, and use them as a cover to buy a $300 uh, set for some reason. I was like, no, you know, you got to do the whole Hogwarts castle. You can't just have a little individual part of it. That's right. That's um, the perks of being a dad. That's what? That's the perks of being a dad. That is. Yeah. You yeah. The Millennium Falcon was a, was a little bit harder to justify. I was like, no, you'll see the movies when you're old enough. Don't worry about it. They're, they're really cool. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You're just priming them. <laughs> yeah. But it's always kind of, uh, there, I've always found, um, you know, when I want to get a little introspective, the most satisfaction I get is is being able to use my brain and being able to use my hands. And uh -huh. if I go too far away from either one of those two aspects, um, I start kind of getting uh, unfulfilled with whatever I'm doing. So being able to use my brain to research and, and do some deep dives and find out what the right answers are or or just learn new concepts and a lot of stuff uh, fills that need, but being able to test them and get my hands on them and really see how I can use them to build. Um, like that, that's one of those things where it's, it's harder and harder to get these days. And you know, the construction industry definitely provides that, you know, I get geeked out by, by seeing some new power tools and, and, uh, you know, seeing some of the innovations that are coming down and, and, and testing them out and trying them. Um, even, even 3d scanners are, are stuff that you wouldn't think that as in the realm of creating, it still it still kind of hits that need when you when you get down to it. You're using them to uh, to build and and even if it's virtually built stuff, it it, it kind of ticks that box for me. Uh, so we've talked about that technology is changing here so fast. How do you go about preparing your MTAA members to uh, embrace this change but remain competitive at the same time? You know, the, the biggest challenge with it, um, the first is just understanding what the, what the playing field is. Um, getting a, a, a good idea of what's going on, where the industry is going, what are the immediate needs, and what's the, the real dangers of not kind of being involved uh, takes, takes a lot of research. It, it's a, it is a full-time job, and I can't even do it, I mean, myself. For me, it, 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 takes, it takes a village, to be honest, and I, I hate to kind of use that term, but it really does. Um, you need to be able to have a wide uh, network of peers, um, of 
of people who are doing it who can give you insight and put you on the right path or say, well, hey, did you ever check this thing out or did you ever try doing this? Or here's a cool solution I found for this that no one would ever thought of. Um, you need to have those people to, to do that, uh, to be able to kind of to, to first learn it. But the, the second challenge is uh, convincing contractors that it's in their own best interest to do this. And you know the proof is really in the productivity. Uh, they understand productivity more than anything else because productivity, obviously, it's a profitability, but you have to get to that. The, the main cell comes around um, having people understand that, you know, by by getting through this hard slog of change, you are actually going to be more productive in the end. And that's going to be what really kind of uh, helps your company survive in the long run. Uh, so you were just talking about productivity. What kind of processes need to be in place in order to, to really capitalize and become more productive in this changing environment? It scales, um, to be honest. Like, so the, the typical path that a lot of mechanical contractors go through um, when it comes to this, this new wave of technology and digitization, mm -hmm. uh, it starts usually with, with something very simple like fabrication or prefabrication mm -hmm. or offsite construction, whatever you want to call it. Um, contractors, uh, they start seeing that it, there's a ton of benefits to doing any kind of fabrication. It starts with safety. Uh, you can have a much more safe and secure job site. You can have better quality when you do it. And you, know, you can have specialized tools that can really, really ramp up your productivity. So what typically happens is you have the best guys doing, uh, doing the, the most important work and in a, in a controlled, safe environment. Uh, so the, you know, the, the case that's to be made for fabrication is an easy sell. But what happens is um, as contractors get into fabrication, they start realizing that that's really where they're making a lot of their, their money back on the jobs. So they try to uh, encourage more and more fabrication on each project they start taking the mentality of what can't we fabricate as opposed to what can we fabricate. And when yeah. you get to that point, you start realizing that there's going to be a limitation on how much you really can fabricate until you start getting into BIM in the virtual design and construction realm. Um, but when you get to that, that break point, you realize that there's a lot of overhead that goes into every single BIM project. Um, and until you kind of get through that process of adapting and incorporating BIM in your process, can you start getting back to the um, productivity gains? Because it's, it's one thing just to say, I'm doing BIM to, to meet project requirements. Uh, it's another thing to say, well, I'm doing BIM, but uh, not only am I doing it, I'm using it for robotic total stations. I'm starting to pull in 3D scanning. I'm using it to get better data and information out to my guys in the field so that as they're, as they're constructing it, they have better information, better models, uh, better data. And they're feeding back in the loop back to me. So if there are changes out there, uh, I can make design changes on my side before we start fabricating the next piece. Uh -huh. So that's, that's kind of the progress, the process that usually happens. Um, the second common process is um, to, to get people more involved with it is, you know, they, they bid on a project and the project requirements had them doing BIM. So they said, okay, well, I'll, I'll do BIMs in some way, shape or form. And they realize that, that the, there's a tremendous amount of expenses that kind of go in there to their overhead. And they're regressively looking to see ways where they can kind of um, make gains on productivity back since you've already gone to that point of, of, uh, of, of going through and, and building a digital model. Nice. So I'm hearing it's important to have kind of the, the big picture in, in mind there, but plan it all out and have those details as well, uh, you know, kind of holding both the big picture and the 
the details at the same time there. Yeah. So when approaching all this change, do you think it's more important to have kind of a, a shorter term perspective or is a, a longer term focus better? Well, you really need both. Um, you, you're not going to be able to get every all the changes made at once. There's, there's just huh. no way. Um, so, I mean, everybody says you kind of got to, you know, how do you eat a dinosaur? You have to do it one bite at a time. You see this big problem, you see this big process, and you can't just immediately incorporate huge process changes in your company without uh, some drastic repercussions. Uh, it can be done. It's not going to be fun. Um, but every single, every single time you're incorporating a new piece of software or new process, a new, new uh, piece of hardware, you know, there's always training involved. There's always implementation. There's rollout. There's, it takes a lot to get everything involved. And then there's, there's constant feedback and there's reinforcement to make sure that people are using it. They're using it correctly. Um, any kind of new software updates mean that there's a new potential changes to an already changing process. And every single time that you're even bringing in the idea of change, you're going to get, you're going to get pushback from staff and it could be something, even if it's an improvement on what they're doing, there's still people that no matter what you do, um, they like things the way they like them. And they know that, yeah, I could do more with this, but I know how to do it this way. Um, yeah. And I always kind of uh, equate it to learning a new language. Um, a lot of people don't necessarily want to learn a new language on a whim. Um, so they kind of revert back like, no, no, I don't need to learn how to, to speak Italian. I'm, I'm good. I can do Spanish and English. I'm okay. But it's, it's kind of necessary in these days and ages to be able to, to kind of uh, broaden your, yourself to, to, to be able to speak the language of, of tech these days. And, and every single software has its own um, wiring and, and mental um, adjustments to be able to go through and use it every single time. So you have to constantly learn new languages just to kind of compete at. There are no two very exact same operating systems to, that can be kind of uh, extrapolated to one another. Sure. Yeah. Change is tough. So you got to be remain adaptable there for sure. Yeah. Uh, where do you see the future of the MEP industry moving over the next five or so years? You know, the, I, I keep saying that um, fabrication is going to get more and more involved. Like, I, I think everybody has a capacity to do some fabrication. Uh, people who still aren't doing it, they're, they're going to have to get their act together. But I think it's going to go beyond um, just mechanicals. Mechanicals are really good at fabricating plumbing, too. Um, but I think it's going to go beyond that. You're going to start seeing some other subtrades have to get in the act too. And it'll start with, uh, like electricians will get involved knowing that they can, they can do some work at a time with panels or, or, um, or, or wiring and, and getting, just getting conduits ready. Um, but it's going to have to go beyond just the M and P and to get to the full MP trades. And once you start seeing an, an even farther, you know, evolution of that, you're going to start seeing multiple trades kind of collaborating more and more to, to the point where it gets to really look more like DFMA or modularization of fabrication. Mm -hmm. um, that is really one of those areas where I, I'd say maybe you're going to see a steady increase for the next five years on that kind of stuff. Uh, even more near term, you're, you're still going to see more and more um, BIM adoption within organizations. I think there's also a lot of, of opportunity for people to start um, finally making the jump if they haven't already to using some field software that connects a lot of the, the data they've, they've gathered in BIM and using in the field. And that field connection piece is gonna be interesting because um, AR does play a role 
um, we did a report on the original Microsoft HoloLens uh, where we did a research study to see if that was, if it was even capable of, of being used in the field. Mm -hmm. And um, for the study itself, we, you know, we bought a few HoloLenses and we, we sent it out to members of our tech committee. Um, every single one of the contractors who did new construction bought their own HoloLens set um, and they started in incorporating in their own processes. Because once you've already built a digital model, um, it was powerful enough to be able to visualize on site. And every single one of them found a real value where you're taking um, the conceptualization of a 3D model or a 2D model from plans and putting it in the real world. When you can visualize it, that conceptualization, is, there's no room for interpretation there. It's right there. You can see right. it. And as soon as you can see it, people are starting to be able to say like, okay, well now I can play on my job even more effectively. When I can see how it's supposed to be in place, I can see that here's how I'm gonna have to stage it, here's how I'm gonna have to preassemble. I'm gonna have a really hard time installing this from, at this place because there's not enough room there. So maybe I, I'm gonna take this path to, to getting it installed. Um, so people found it really, really, really powerful. And um, now there's a HoloLens 2 coming out and it's supposed to be even more powerful. I get my first set, fingers crossed by the end of the month, it is quite the Christmas present for geeks. I will say that. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but we'll go through and we'll test it out and we'll see if it's uh, if it holds up with the with the capabilities and see what else is out there for us to kind of be able to utilize it. But yeah. that's just an extension of the piece of getting data out to the field. It's a it's an ultimate extension because then it, it takes even farther than what you can do, you know, with a lot of software that's already out there. But it's still an extension of what what you can get out to the field. The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and championing innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Yeah, well, absolutely. And it totally just brings it all to life. I mean, you walk through those models and it's insane how realistic it actually is. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how well it's drawn. But yes, if, if it's, I mean, garbage in, garbage out. But it's, it's true. But if it's well made in, the, in, the, in a virtual design, then it can be well made in the, in the real world too. Cool. Uh, so how does MCAA go about helping contractors move to BIM? You know, we put a lot in this initiative um, over the last six and a half years. Um, you know, the first, first and foremost, we do a, a, a tech conference every year. And just by getting up and, and doing this tech conference and showing people what's going on in the industry, um, it's, it, it's a great way to just spin, make everybody's wheel spin a little bit and, and get some ideas out there. Um, but to be honest, the first one we put together, I was, I was kind of upset with myself and how I, how I uh, organized the, the education content because I brought out some of the stuff that was like the most futuristic things I could find. And, you know, and everybody was sitting there like, well, how's that going to get me a job in West Philly? You no, know, like, well, that's a good point. I don't know how smart, how like smart cities will help you get a job in West Philly because they're not building a smart city there. Yeah. Um, but I scaled it back uh, pretty quickly after that. And every single time we do one of these conferences, I make sure that the focus of every session is number one, it's practical today. So somebody has to be able to be doing it right now today. Uh, and number two, if we can get contractors involved who have real world experience with whichever software, hardware, or uh, design practice that we're talking about, they can give you their perspective. Because it's one thing to hear it from me, 
or a salesperson or you know anybody who's a, a theoretical professor type mm-hmm. um, it's a lot more it's a lot more relevant and it, and it really drives the point home when you can have a contractor who is doing it right now say here's what we're doing here's the value we find out of it um, we occasionally get people who are even willing to say like you know this is how much um, how much is driving up our productivity or here's what we're seeing in our in our gains from it um, but that's really a testament to our membership and the fact that um, they see the value of of sharing insights and and uh, you know giving some to get some too. Um, it's that I know it's one of those uh, things that gets gets thrown around a lot now. The coopetition. Um, they realize that they're they're competitors to some extent, um, but they're still cooperating together. And and by doing so, you know that everybody's kind of bringing ideas to the table and taking ideas away. Um, right. And to be honest, it's a lot easier with with a national association because you're not really talking ever to your direct competitor. Typically, it's like uh, if you're from from Georgia, you're getting ideas from guys in California and vice versa. So it's it's a little bit easier for people to to loosen up and share some of their their ideas, or even be a little bit more candid about why things are working or why they're not working, or what they wish they had done when they when they started out with the process, or they can just tell about how much of a bear it is to to make the change in some some ways to kind of uh, avoid a lot of the heartache involved. No, that's awesome. Uh, so what kind of research have you seen uh, or trends on BIM and robotic total stations and kind of the ideal CPU for BIM? So yeah, I guess that's the second part of what we're doing. Um, the first, yeah, we do the, the tech conference, but we also have a, a series of research papers we've been putting out through, um, through the, the tech initiative the last uh, few years. Um, the first one we ever did was actually on 3D scanning. We're 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 actually about to redo it, but we've done uh, one basically on every single every main point of of technology that's really kind of uh, common today. So you know robotic total stations, 3D scanners. Uh, we did the most recent one is on BIM CPU. Um, the BIM CPU one you're talking about is um, one of the issues a lot of people have is when they're going to if they're say they're in charge of VDC department or you're just one of the BIM jockeys out there and you say, my computer is really slow for what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm gonna give you an ask for a souped up version of a computer so I can do what I can do. And then when the boss is trying to sign the check for it, he has no idea, he or she has no idea, like, is this a good value? Am I, am I, am I is someone asking for this $50,000, you know, MacBook or Mac Pro, whatever they have out now, that's, that's cost as much as a car. Um, so we put together a report that basically says, you know, if you are doing this kind of work, here's the optimized system you can have. Here's what a reliable system you could have. Here's the minimum set of requirements that you need to have spec'd out um, so you can go through and you can actually um, build a computer that's capable of doing what you want it to do. The other part that's helpful is a lot of our, a lot of member, a lot of contractors for that matter don't have permanent IT staff. They have fractional IT staff. And even the permanent IT staff don't necessarily know all the different requirements for each individual software for the construction industry. You know, they're obviously familiar with very uh, typical business software uh, between like Microsoft Office and maybe like the Adobe Suite or something like that. But once you go, but once it goes beyond that, they don't know what the, the optimized um, setup would be for Revit or, you know, for any of like the 3D scanning softwares out there. So we give them kind of like the tools to say, if you're, if you're like a fractional IT or an IT staff, um, here's how you need to spec out at a minimum for each of these different types of software, each of these, a performance paths um, and it's a really good tool so that um, the owners aren't necessarily thrown off 
contractor, like the IT staff um, knows what to ask for, how to build it out. And the VDC, even the VDC jockeys um, who might understand that they need a, a better computer might not understand exactly what will make their computer better. They just know that they're wasting time as models are, are being, or while well, models being crunched and stuff like that. So it's, it does help out. Um, so we do that, we, we actually refresh that every year. We use a, a, a third party group to do that through JB Knowledge. Um, I'm not sure if you know James Benham and his group down there, but they're, yeah. they're a very good resource for, for that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and um, all the different pieces of hardware that we're looking at um, between 3D scanners or robotic total stations. Uh, the original reports we did, we went through JB Knowledge, but we're actually starting to use um, a former contractor who is now starting up his own um, research lab to to do this from a from a contractor's perspective, uh -huh. which really does make a, a big difference, um, because it's one thing to say that, uh, yeah, the, the this three D scanner is is accurate to a quarter of an inch from thirty feet. It's a lot different. We say, well, this type of scanner is really great about picking up. Um, copper but it can't do anything for stainless steel um, right. it has a, this kind of scanner is great but if you're doing anything uh, that's that's uh, in a wet scenario or outside it's never going to pick it up so we're going to redo some of these things and try to make um, make all of our research more tailored towards a contractor's perspective and we're also going to take it in and add in a ton of video so that people have a much better sense of some of the operation steps um, even some of the basics like how to do a, a typical workflow and um, then also just give a, a, a product demo as it's going through so people can see exactly all the different steps that this specific kind of scanner might need um, yeah. to be able to form. That's awesome. When is all that expected to, to roll out here? Uh, so the, once we get the kind of the, the skeleton together of you know, the intro and all the different process yeah. uh, pieces, which I think will probably be in the next four months for the 3D scanning one. We're yeah. going to start strapping on and then just making it a live document for every single new scanner that hits the market. Nice. So say Pharaoh comes out with a new scanner, we'll, we'll go and evaluate that. We'll put up the results. Um, you know, since it's third party verified, um, it won't make a difference if Pharaoh is a member of ours or not. We're doing an independent research on this. Um, and then our committee will kind of evaluate to make sure that the processes line up with what we want to have tested in the first place. Very cool. Uh, so you guys are working on a project for the, the VDC workflow for mechanical operations. Can you kind of speak to that and unpack that some? Yeah, that's that's a tougher one. It's funny, I was actually just showing that that to uh, to a client that I was at on, uh, on Tuesday. Um, so that whole idea came about because for years we've had probably one of our most popular uh, educational sessions that we do as an association is called uh, the Institute of Project Management. And yeah. every year we have um, hundreds of project managers uh, go to Austin and there they take two separate one week classes where they really teach them the basics of how to be an effective project manager because um, the project managers are the ones who are critical to any kind of company's profitability, no matter which way you want to cut it. Uh, if you don't have a good project manager, you are you are going to most likely not not do well in that job. So we've we've taken a really big interest in making sure that uh, we have a resource there so that your company has effective project management um, to at least have a baseline understanding of where they should be and what they should be doing. Um, but as part of that, they always had 
um, basically a workflow, a basic workflow of what goes on in, in a typical uh, process. And that's what they teach off of. They say, okay, here's our general workflow. It goes from, from you know, estimating to uh, design, all this other stuff and, and fabrication. And it takes that all into consideration. The only problem is VDC came through and really knocked it on its butt a little bit because there's, it touches so many different areas of the workflow now. Uh -huh. uh, the group said, we really need to kind of um, modify that whole document to incorporate VDC into it. Uh, beef up the fabrication in a little bit too. That was, it was a little light on some of the fabrication stuff. And then we want to make sure uh, that as companies start evolving and setting up their own VDC workflows within their, within their groups, that they know what a typical workflow looks like. Because um, oftentimes what you'll see is everyone's just trying to figure it out on their own. Uh, it's such a new process that um, they're getting it done, but they haven't ever formalized any kind of corporate philosophy on here's how we do this kind of job every single time. So we want to give them the tools to be able to at least do that. Um, the other part of that is we realized that not every company is built the same way. Um, scale has a lot to do with it. If you're a large company, you have a lot more resources and, and staff that can kind of perform multiple functions in the, in the process. But we want to make this flexible to say like, okay, um, you know, we would do that obviously, but we're a small company. So we have the same guy doing six of these things uh, instead of just two or three things that's normally in there. Um, right. So then we break down the whole thing to make it customizable. But every single um, step of the process, you see an overview of what's going on in that step. You see who is typically involved, whether it be like the estimator, the project manager, the VDC guy, the VD operations, uh, fabrication, whoever. And then every time you drill into one of those people, it says what that person does in that step of the process. So um, that's in development. Um, we'll probably have that out. I mean, it could be uh, within, a, within a month or so. Um, but we'll definitely have it by the end of January. Uh, it is a member only tool. That's the downside of this. So you've got to be an MCM member to be able to use it. Uh, but it really should provide a really good understanding of how to customize your own operations to make it fit your, your processes. That's awesome. It sounds like a really helpful tool coming out. Yeah. And it's all going to be online. Um, so, and because it's online, you can, once it kind of, once you tie it to your member, um, your member number, then you can keep it there and you can modify it and you can go back and you can share it even amongst people, your company. Um, so it's a, it's kind of an online living document, which you of course can print out, but it, it makes it so it's a lot more customizable for everybody. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so you mentioned earlier about connecting members together. How does, uh, how do you guys go about building those relationships to you know, provide a forum for open uh -huh. conversation and people to talk shop, give honest feedback, all that stuff. You know, I, I tell you what, cause I was, I was talking to a, uh, a peer from a different association and they were saying that they have, they're having the hardest problem with this where their members are very tight and they don't want to talk about anything. They don't want to share ideas. Mm -hmm. um, they were having, you know, like a, like say they had a technology committee, um, none of them would share anything. It was all being driven by the volunteer or by the, the staff and not necessarily the volunteers. I mean, I, I've been lucky in that I came to this industry. I came to this association and there was already that mentality of, of uh, we are going to succeed um, by making sure everybody understands everybody else's ideas 
and kind of raise up the whole industry as a whole. Um, so that, and I think part of it actually starts from uh, just the familiarity with peer groups. I, I think peer groups are, are pretty common in the mechanical industry uh, for, for mechanical contractors. Um, and I think just from that, that basic understanding of a peer group where they, they share a lot of information ideas and they really pull back the curtains, um, that the more they do stuff like that, the, uh, the better off we all are. So that's, that's always kind of been there, but you know, they see um, different contractors getting up there and sharing and they've got you know, tons of ideas or suggestions, um, but it is a good way of, of really kind of getting out there and sharing. And it even goes to the point where we have um, a conference every year called our fabrication conference, um, where somebody will actually host it. They'll open up their whole operations and they will allow 200 members uh, to come through and they'll explain every single aspect of the process. Oh, wow. The reason why they do it is because they've been to the you know last ten or fifteen of the of the fabrication conferences, and what you see throughout their operations are ideas that came from previous conferences, uh-huh. and they're willing to share because they know um, as they bring these two hundred uh, peers throughout their their facilities, they're getting uh, suggestions from the people who actually do that same exact work, and it's and it's yeah. rare you find someone who has that much. Um, embedded information on such a specific topic. So to get feedback on your processes and uh, your, your, your tools and, and everything you do with your, your company is, is incredible. You, you always get more than you give, even though you might be shutting down your operations for a day. The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Applied Software's Live Lab Learning, a virtual classroom experience where students can listen, interact, and learn from veteran real-world application specialists in real time from anywhere in the world. LiveLab is the affordable, convenient way for your staff to take Autodesk certified training courses and even earn some AIA continuing education credits, all from the comfort of your own office. Visit ASTI.com for more information and let them know we sent you. That's fantastic. Very cool. Nice. That's uh, my favorite conference. That's one of my favorite conferences. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that uh, sounds super unique too in the industry, the, for any industry, for people just to open up their, their shop like that. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, but again, it's one of those things where they know that you know, if, they've, if they're doing it, somebody else has done it before them. And I mean, I always love the, the person who does it first, who's willing to be like, yeah, I, I know what we're doing. We're doing pretty well, but I'm willing to take feedback and I'm, I'm comfortable with who I am and, and showing it off. So Yeah. That's awesome. So how should firms look at prefab and how, how aggressive do they know? How should they know how aggressive to be in leveraging prefab? You know, I I think a lot of people get scared up by the idea of fabrication, even like especially smaller contractors. Um, Smaller contractors think that you have to have a hundred thousand square feet of space to be able to do it. And it's simply not true. I've seen, really small plumbing contractors um, that will utilize Connex boxes and they'll be super effective in doing it. It's just simply the idea of organize some space that you can have that's controlled, um, that you can have better tools and get your arms around the process. But even by, by doing that, you start having the right uh, type of manpower doing the right type of thing. And it controls the process so much better. Um, but how far to go into it is all about a matter of um, you know, the type of work you're doing that's, that's, that's ready for it and how far you want to take it. I mean, yeah. I've seen some incredibly large contractors and they would, if they could fabricate 
80% of what they send out, they would for sure. Um, and even though their shop is always busy, they're still only fabricating 10 or 15% of the total, um, the total work. And that's, to me, that's kind of crazy. Like you'd, you'd say, why aren't you doing even more? And it, it all boils down to um, how much space you have, how much control you can have, the farther you kind of make it, the farther you enlarge that space. And you don't ever really want to go too, too far because you never want to get to the point where you're, you're taking work just to feed the fabrication. You know, you still want to make it scalable. You still want to be flexible. Um, but I'd say a lot of people get by on the larger side um, with, with a, you know, anywhere from 50 to, uh, to 75,000 square feet of space. Um, but I've seen, I've seen uh, fab shops as small as 150 square feet. And it's crazy. It really doesn't take much sometimes. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, so I got one more question and it's around the, the labor shortage. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the, the topic. Uh, I saw a, a recent Autodesk survey. Uh, it was something like 80% of firms are saying that they are struggling finding the skilled craft positions uh, to fill the you know over 400,000 positions that are open. Uh, this is a huge problem going on in, in the industry and doesn't seem like it's slowing down if anything's probably ramping up how are you guys going about addressing um and coming alongside this skilled labor shortage well i'd say first of all we're, we're really kind of uh we're in a good spot these days in that we've got a labor union that we work with with united association that understands the needs um, and they're doing their best to address it as well um, but when we when we start addressing it, we're not doing it by ourselves. We're doing it with the United Association. So we uh, we have a, a great relationship with them, and um, we both understand that we're both trying to do that. We're trying to get more apprentices in through uh, through the JATCs. Um, when I personally speak to groups, I mean, I, I've I've done this a few times. Um, I really try to sh the, the the first the first barrier to entry is you've got to get in front of guidance counselors. Or you've got to get in front of of uh, principals who want to bring in uh, people to show different kind of career paths. And you got to get them past that mentality that it's college or nothing. Um, that is the hardest thing to get past because a lot of guidance counselors are incentivized on what they're doing by how many people, how many kids they place in college. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the right thing to, to look at because they're, uh, they're doing themselves an incredible disservice, especially with washout rates in college. Um, you know, if you have, you know, some of the large, you know, state colleges, there, there's a, a very typical 40% washout rate in the first year. And so if you're a guidance counselor who's placed somebody in one of those, um, that, that's a washout, all of a sudden you just, you just wasted their money, wasted their time, and, and probably took them down a career path where they think that they've now failed. And that's not the right way to look at it. Um, you really need to look at construction as, as, a, as, a, um, as a career where you can, again, use your hands, use your brains, um, look for people who like to fix things. Look for people who understand that there is, um, there's a value proposition to not going to college and having a career. Um, you know, what I usually do is it's a very lucrative business. I mean, uh, if you're willing to kind of put in five years of work, if you're going through a union apprenticeship, uh, the average starting, I think, um, salary or hourly salary for a first year apprentice is something like $16 around the country, $16 an hour around the country, which is a, a very good wage for, for some kid who's probably been working you know, retail at best. Um, and that scales up, um, and depending on where you are in the area, I mean, it scales up really high to the point where, you know, it, once you become an established journeyman, it's not to say that you're going to be making six figures pretty pretty quickly. 
Uh, it just depends on how many hours you're, you're doing and you know, if you're working full time and if you're getting overtime or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, what, really, what I really find effective is uh, when you do this, if I'm going to an area, I always bring in like a, a kid who just got out of his apprenticeship or her apprenticeship uh, like a year or two before. And when you show the apprentice who is now a journey person and you, you want to get somebody who is like 26, 27, they just bought their first house. Um, you're like, wow, there's no way I could have ever done that if I went to school uh, buying my first house at 26. I mean, that's just impossible like, to, to think about that. But sometimes yeah. they're doing it when they're 22, 23, 24 um, because they've got a steady income. They don't have college debt uh, because right. when you go through a union apprenticeship, you're essentially uh, getting paid and learning a trade at the same time. So um, you know, you raise the college debt, you add in um, all the different, you add in getting paid during that whole time and a permanent job after you get out. It is a, it is a great argument to make it, especially when you know, we started doing, um, we put together a calculator a, a number of years ago uh, with the union um, where you could enter in you know, the local uh, tuition for, so for me, like let's say University of Maryland. So you'd enter in the University of Maryland tuition, uh, you calculate it over four years, um, and then you enter in the, um, the wage of an apprenticeship um, throughout, throughout those times and what the average or what the journeyman makes in that, that territory. And you see how long it takes for the average career of a college educated student to you know, make up that, that $100,000, $120,000 in, in student loans a day to take. Uh, to ever be able to catch up to that salary that they've been making over that entire span as a German. And it wow. actually usually balances out somewhere around like when they're 62 or something like that oh, wow. is, is where it gets to. It's, it's crazy how far, how far down the line you have to go um, because it's, it is one of those things where it's a valuable tool to learn. You know, as long as you can work with your hands, you're always going to have a job. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a, a good way of getting to it. But that's, that's a tact I usually take uh, after I, whenever I have to make presentations. But really, it's getting through to the guidance counselors. It's getting through to the parents uh, so that they can kind of uh, refocus their mindset. Because a lot of parents think that if I don't get my kid to college, I'm not, I'm, I'm a failure as a parent. And that's not the case anymore. You just, you can't, you got to sometimes looking at it from a, from a different angle and, and, and kind of hack the system a little bit these days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a kind of a perception problem. And uh, just getting the construction story out there because it's a cool story to tell like what you were just talking about and all the innovation that we've unpacked uh, during this conversation. And there's exciting things out there that we just need to talk louder and get in front of people. This is, it doesn't have to be just a career where you're breaking blocks. I mean, that's not what construction is. Like it is, it is working with, with, with computers. It is working with robotic total stations. It's working with 3D scanners. It's working within BIM models. There's a lot you can do that isn't necessarily just, um, physical or, or assembling, um, uh -huh. there is that part of it because we always kind of feel that uh, if you know how to run pipe the right way, it's a lot easier to teach you how to use Revit um, after you know how to run pipe than it is to teach someone who knows how to use, it takes five years to basically learn how to run pipe effectively. Um, it takes you about, what, six to eight months to learn how to use Revit effectively. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that whole kind of value proposition there too. Nice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and, and joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Happy to join you. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks to all those tuning in to the podcast. If you're interested in learning any more 
uh, about anything that we've talked about, you can reach out to one of our sponsors, Applied Software at ASDI.com or Evolve MEP at EvolveMEP.com. And you can listen anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, BridgingTheGapPod.com. Until next time, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast, sponsored by Applied Software. Keep innovating. Thanks for listening to the Bridging the Gap podcast. Please spread the word by giving us a five-star review and share with your friends and coworkers. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our other applied software podcast, the AEC Disruptors. Thanks for listening. Bridging the Gap is produced and directed by Alyssa Chartier, edited by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production, copyright Applied Software 2019.